Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Ross Sutherland, a poet, podcaster, and filmmaker I've been following ever since I saw his brilliant standby for tape backup at Hot Docs in 2015. You might also have encountered his inventive podcast Imaginary Advice, which just won Best Fiction Podcast at the 2018 British Podcast Awards. He'll be bringing the show to the Fest in Chicago this Monday, October 1st, for a live recording at Lynx Hall. Ross picked Network, Sidney Lumet's 1976 satire about the yawning hellscape that is American television, and the anchorman named Howard Beale, played by Peter Finch, who becomes its unlikely prophet. Written by Patty Chayefsky and co-starring William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Robert Duvall, Ned Beatty, and Beatrice Strait, the film offered a distressingly prescient view of news media. So prescient, in fact, that it no longer registers as satire. Nominated for 10 Oscars, it won four for Finch, Dunaway, Strait, and Chayefsky, and Network remains one of the key American films of the 1970s. We recorded this episode in London earlier this year, in the final days of Brian Cranston's stage run of Network at the National Theatre. With a recent announcement that Cranston will be bringing the play to Broadway this fall, accompanied by none other than Tatiana Maslany, friend of the show, it felt like the perfect time to revisit Howard Beale's world. Even if, you know, we're soaking in it. This is someone else's movie. This is like a kind of theme which is always on my mind. I think more so as like years have kind of gone by. And maybe it's because uh, the main subject of, of the, the podcast that I make, uh, Imaginary Advice, is kind of all about those areas where real life and fiction meet. It's that mm-hmm. kind of porous boundary um, and the way that like almost there are certain types of media that almost like you can't come into contact with them without them changing you, you know, right, like right. And sometimes this is kind of cathartic kind of like helps us understand our own lives by kind of like putting kind of narrative fiction over the top of it kind of helps us identify archetypes and stuff like that. But it's also you, you are flattening out your life and exploiting yourself. And if you lose control of it and hand over control of your story to somebody else, that's when things get like really kind of strange and difficult. Mm. And I think that's kind of, for me, that's uh, that, that's network in, in a nutshell, really. I love it also for someone whose background is maybe primarily working in words and writing, like my background was kind of writing poetry to begin with. And uh, so I'm quite verbal in the kind of, in stuff that I make. And of course, you know, like, uh, Paddy script is all verbal, you know, and apparently he even had, uh, uh, he had like final cut on the film or something ridiculous. Yeah, he was, he, as a writer, he occupied a really odd space for a little while. Uh, in the seventies, I mean, there's the, there's the whole thing that happened with Altered States a few years later too. Which just kind of went off the deep end, right? Kind of lost control of it or something. Yeah, he took his name off the script and, Uh. and removed himself from a number of other aspects of it. Promotion, production. Uh, but with network, you just you have the feeling. The only the only comparison I can make is someone like Aaron Sorkin, who you know wields power in the service of his words and and can get a little precious about it. But it's such it's so similar, isn't it? I feel talking the speed of it 
and the use of like repetition as well that fooling you into thinking it's naturalistic when yeah, in fact yeah, yeah. it's incredibly articulate you know but like and I think that doing that balance and I guess also must be you know Sidney Lumet is really rehearsing the heck out of like these performances no, they, they must to, have been they must have been doing hours and hours and hours before every shot but Lumet's like his his greatest quality uh, as a director to my mind is that he gets out of the way like he really he doesn't influence the film or he doesn't feel like he's influencing the film and and that documentary style makes you uh, more quickly believe it it just yeah. it seems more credible that this is happening because the film isn't trying so hard to make you believe in this world where things are just a little crazy mm-hmm. and now of course forty years later you look back at it and it's almost naive yeah right. Yeah, but but Chayefsky, yeah, his point is that not only is is corporate control of of information coming, but it's already here. It's it's already entertainment, and the packaging, you know, the packaging phase is over. And now we're trying to deal with what happens when people uh, succumb to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The like we're now in this point where, um, like we've got so good. At selling authenticity that it doesn't exist anymore, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, like it's actually completely gone. Now, something actually, like I didn't, on like the first time you watch it through, and maybe this is also like my own kind of like naivety in watching it, but the moment when uh, uh, the big classic famous scene where, uh, you know, he uh, tells everyone that, uh, you know, that they should say that they're mad as hell and uh, they're not going to take it anymore, and it gets everybody to throw open their windows and kind of shout that into the storm first time I saw that I was like oh look at this amazing moment of uh, this call to arms and he's actually he's he's having this great real effect on people this is this is a real unmediated moment yeah. that's happening and then kind of like once you've watched the film through once and you know where it goes and you know just how cynical the, the, like it, it's treating this kind of the, 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 the transmission of information and you watch it again and you're like oh no when they stand in the window and talk outside, they're putting themselves in little TV boxes. Yeah, yeah. They are literally just parroting. It, like, and, and actually, by getting them to like chant a slogan, you're almost like immediately like absolved from it. You're, you're, you're immediately put into the position of like role play. It's no yeah. longer about expressing your own fears or anxieties it's just about you're effectively just like retweeting what he said to the neighborhood right every time i watch it i remind i'm kind of trying to pay more attention to the percentage of people who are legitimately shouting and the others who are doing it with kind of a smile in their voice Mm. because it's fun because it's an opportunity that you know howard beale the mad prophet of the airwaves uh which is just as much of a brand as anything else is offering them a chance to you know make the news fun yeah by having a prolonged psychotic break and, and this is why it kind of reminds me of kind of like what now we know is kind of like meme culture mm. in that uh, I was thinking about, uh, it was this is years ago now, but remember like South Park did an episode uh, about ginger kids and they said, oh, ginger kids don't have souls. Right. And then there was like a young ginger kid who did this kind of video and he filmed it in his backyard and it kind of seemed genuine. It was maybe, it was, he was, he, he, his phrasing was kind of weird and it was hard to work out if he was just passionately you know, shouting back against South Park saying like, oh, of course ginger kids have souls. Don't, don't say that yeah. about us. 
because you know, so you can work out the authenticity exactly. But then all these other people just started copying it, and they're putting on some of them are uh, like have ginger hair. Some are putting on uh, ginger wigs, and some of them are clearly on his side, and like, and, and, and some of them are like like satirizing him. And you're like, but all the other little mini details were always remembered. Everybody always went to a backyard to do it. They always remembered in the middle, he makes a kind of woo sound at like one point. All those little, those little background, uh, like little felicities are all sort of like remembered. But no one cares, but the actual message is like completely gone. It's like immediately erased. Yeah, it's just fun to do the thing. Yeah. And to be seen to do it. It's um, it's bizarre because we we went somewhere very different. I think ultimately with with news technology and, and entertainment that that intersection. It's not, Chayefsky predicted something where people would still sit in studios and do talking heads, and and it's all very bleak and basic. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of production. Although it turns out, of course, that they're sponsoring their own Black Liberation Army, and and um, it it just feels like he took everything that was happening around him and shoved it into this one concept. And it it makes perfect sense in retrospect, right? Because corporate control, the whole point, it's like Disney now owns everything. Mm. That's exactly what this movie is about. It's just yeah. about the news division. And so quickly, um, it, it just, it backgrounds the sense of Beale's uh, illness, that, that this man is deranged, that he's not, he's not well. And rather than get him help and uh, or take him off the air, they just keep him on and yeah. exploit him. And that's I caught up to some of the earlier reviews and just the other day, just to, to refresh myself. And so many people are um, horrified at the exploitation of this poor man. And hmm. it's like, well, you just you know you weren't thinking about reality television. It's that's that he got absolutely right. Yeah, and it's something uh, like like I've got like a kind of. Uh, I, I I sit adjacent to a lot of reality TV stuff. I, there's a couple of things that I like. I like uh, I like a dog whisperer. That's exploiting dogs. Is that okay? <laughs> I feel that's no, no, is, is that is that allowed? But um, I assume they all get cookies. They get cookies. Yeah, you know, they, they do all right. They don't know they're on TV, that's right? Great. So like their egos are protected. Yeah, the dog ego. Um, but um, my girlfriend watches uh, a bunch of the shows. Like she watches like a uh, uh, Geordie. Shaw, our version of Jersey Shaw, right. uh, and, and a couple of other ones where they just have to get the entire entertainment is about them getting paralytic drunk and then humiliating themselves and then the hangover and kind of like having to like pause the horrible things they said the night before and then repeat and repeat. So they're just confronted with the footage. Do they show them what they? They don't show them, but they no, they go. I mean, these are huge. I mean, like. I, yeah, I, I think they they end up kind of shoeless in a weird location. That <laughs> they're they're like it, it's a they know that something terrible has has happened, and uh, yeah, like I can't imagine how it is for those people now who have had to connect directly this relationship between their own um, success and. Alcohol, right, like right. on such like a fundamental level, how do you like move on from that? How do you then go on and do other jobs? You've probably got like a very brief window of time to kind of migrate from that show, which is basically like the gladiator floor, right, right. to something which is a bit more of a kind of presenter type job, right? Or 
that's it. There are people who are on these shows who have been on them for like seven or eight years. Right. And then you're like, you, this is dangerous now for you to be kind of just like absolutely like annihilating yourself. And it is, it's kind of, you're kind of framing mental illness and, uh, and provoking it and prodding it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about network, the thing about the film's characters is that they're much better at staying on message than real people. <laughs> and that's because there's a script, right? That's yeah. the ultimate point of Chayefsky is yeah. that, is that yeah. he has something to say. Read every line. Yeah. Every word. And yeah. he's making them say it. But um, you just you just watch this. I mean, I, I, I we jump, I'm, we're obviously going to jump all over the plot, but you just watch this thing pinwheel through all the reactions to this thing and, and watching characters try to figure out what reality is and what normal is. And then in the middle of it all, you have the scene with Beatrice Strait where you just see the cost of cynicism. And and you you remember, you know, like you're forced to remember, oh, that's right, these are human beings. Yeah, this is real life yeah. going on at the margins. I mean, again, comparing like that conversation um, with, um, with Max's wife to the one he has with, um, um, with Diana, um, which is all in um, like... A screenwriter talk yeah. right you know he even says at one point oh it's like the exact I know how predictable you know like it's the middle of act two crisis and it literally is the yeah. middle of act two but um, yeah to then suddenly have that little I think that's why that performance of the of um, uh, Beatrice Strait is um, we, like we, we're so kind of like well received isn't yeah. it it's this brief window into, I think like, it's the shortest performance to win an Oscar in history <laughs> which is amazing talking of like people being on like Auto cue. Um, even uh, Howard Beale, when he's kind of like having his breakdown, like for a lot of the time, the words are still coming from elsewhere, right? Yeah. Of course, he's used to being on a teleprompter, and then he's no longer on teleprompter. But like his first outburst is pretty much a verbatim version of what Max says to him, drunk in the opening scene. Yeah. He just parrots that back. Max probably doesn't remember because he's he said it in a moment of kind of drunken clarity that that was what was going to be the future and then um, you know like Howard makes it real and then someone's talking to him in his sleep I guess that's the closest you could say to like something from his kind of his conscience his subconscious kind of like kind of talking through him but then uh, you've got like the, the Jensen executive reprograms him to kind of say his message yeah. later on like as well so he's he's still and I guess this is the thing about like prophets they are meant to be vessels right yeah. they're vessels from some higher force and it's just that like that they're just kind of like fighting over um, who has control of that force's particular teleprompter yeah and of course we call it channeling which is even better <laughs> yeah. right like yeah. they're, they're, he's literally switching channels between the people uh, and the groups and the and the interests that are vying for him, and yet no one tries to counter it. They, when they when they come up with another prophet, it's incredibly fraudulent. You can just read it, right? There's there is a sense of truth happening in Peter Finch's performance, and it's just I think what it is is the way his eyes shift, and he doesn't really seem to know where he is half the time, mm. and he looks scared yeah. when he's doing this. As he escalates and he starts waving papers, he stands up and he's he sucks the air in, and it's just he's terrified, um, and of course. We understand why in the end. It's because they will kill him. But um, it's it's so weirdly human that it makes the, the prophet stuff land harder, I think. It really is a knife edge of a film. And kind of like bold lightning, as they sort of tend to say yeah. sometimes. Because you could... 
I mean, even sometimes talking about it uh, in this way, you go like, oh, this sounds like insanely heavy-handed. Oh, yeah. it it's so, gone. it's so over, it's just like, like, this shouldn't work. Yeah, it could have gone wrong so many different ways. Yeah. At every stage, I mean, just every scene has the, the seed of its own destruction. And that's maybe, that's, and that's, yeah, it's that kind of, it's the sort of stuff that now you just like assume as with the sort of like the trappings of any kind of like pseudo postmodern story that is going to like call attention to its own construction. But weirdly it manages to, yeah, to both be constantly calling attention to, to, to how it's constructed whilst delivering these like very, very believable performances. Yeah. And it is, it's, it is, um, Beatrice Strait kind of just like anger and uh, and um, a Peter Finch's just like bewilderment that sort of helps uh, anchor it. And I don't even think you know a character like uh, um, like Faye Dunaway's character is not. I mean, like you, you couldn't really call her the villain because she's almost just like an automaton in a weird way. Yeah. She's sort of she's she's just. It's there's no sort of decision to to do this. This is just kind of at her heart who she is. I guess they what they call her like incarnated television. Yeah, they? she doesn't act maliciously. She just acts pragmatically. Yeah, and that's the more terrifying thing because she doesn't value the people involved. She just wants to get the ratings up. And, yeah, and yeah, if you're gonna cast someone to do that, Dunaway is so perfect. Dunaway in 1976 is just a shark. She's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I heard. Uh, anecdotally, I heard that um, when Sidney Lumet brought the script to her, he said, uh, oh, it was something like, he says, I know you're going to ask where the vulnerability is, so I'm just going to tell you now that she doesn't have one. <laughs> and if you try and put any vulnerability in, I'm just going to edit it out. So don't even try. Which actually is weird, but a good example maybe of Sidney Lumet telling someone what maybe an actor needs to hear, not necessarily what, what actually will happen in the film, because yeah. I think she does have like a tiny, tiny little bit of vulnerability yeah. uh, at the end, but maybe you need to tell an actor, don't even, don't even try uh, kind of like sympathizing because yeah. I'll, 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 I'll cut it out. I've always wondered how you do that, how you build um, this quote Edgar Wright once said on about Scott Pilgrim, that the, the whole thing came down to getting everyone to pull on the rope at exactly the same tension and that the director's job is to tell them what the tension is. Mm. So cast, crew, background players everybody has to know exactly what the tone is of this film and that's physically attention you have to figure it out network seems like another kind of film where you know it had, it didn't this kind of movie didn't exist before they made it so you're breaking new ground and i would imagine Lumet would do anything use everything in his toolbox to get there yeah and it's the yeah so these kind of these things which we will never know these kind of coded yeah, this kind of coded language, which, and I guess for every single person on the team, that's different, mm -hmm. right? You all need to know it, like, you have to kind of describe that tension in a different way, which suits the individual artist. Yeah, and still gets them to give the performance that you need. Yep, yeah. that coheres with, uh, um, with everybody else. And it seems like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, whether that's, you know, knowing, every, you know, all previous films that they've done and being able to kind of like pull something out of the archive or yeah no that's this is the thing that becomes utterly baffling to yeah. me you know as a as someone who loves film that, that that is the area which just feels like the black box that I, I really 
do not know how how it's done. Well, I guess it could because it because there is no cheat code, right? It, it, it is thousands of, of very very small, very precise conversations. Yeah, and and just even the casting, you know, like the decision to put William Holden in that role, who is ultimately known for strong sympathetic performances and make him weak mm. and make him you know impotent, un, unable to save his friend and and incapable of changing the direction of the world. Yeah, like just checked out. Yeah. yeah. And trying to figure out, the, the last time I watched it, I was trying to figure out if he's supposed to be Judas or Saul. Like, where does he fit in a, in a, in a Christian sacrifice allegory? Mm. And I don't think, I just don't think it works. I don't think you can go there. Um, but he's, he's the witness, ultimately. He's the one who simply stands there and takes it all in, realizes he's betrayed his own values and lost his friend, but it doesn't change him. Like he doesn't come out of it shattered. He no. just he just continues to deflate. This is it, isn't it? It is a film which is just it's an arrow going straight down, mm. and it and it, and, it, and that's what's quite odd about. It. That's why it feels more like it feels more like an essay in that like Panachowski is kind of like taking an idea and goes, okay, well I'm going to keep advancing this idea yeah. and kind of reducto absurdum. I'll show you where it eventually leads to. Right, but that means that it doesn't. Characters, um, you, yeah, there, there, there's no kind of like reconciliation. People don't change. Yeah, they just they just take what's in their heart and then and and then just like let that lead them to 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 whatever the the bottom of the barrel is. Yeah, right? it's the despair of realizing that all the decisions were made months or years ago. Yeah, like this is just what's happening now, and that's what gives, it gives it a weird feel. And I, and I and I suppose like I think that is a kind of slightly unsettling part of it and it, and it means that despite the fact that it's in many ways is very very linear it doesn't necessarily feel very um well it doesn't feel very Hollywood which is I guess is is, yeah. is intentional of course but uh, uh yeah there's a like when it just the way that it ends with him just being assassinated on air and then credits yeah. you know like is you know like it, it is um it, it still remains kind of like shocking for um, yeah, for that reason. Yeah, it's um, it's always struck me as really, you know, everybody is constantly relitigating the 1976 Oscars because it was five films which sort of speak to the possible directions of American cinema, where right. it was going to go, and and which one, you know, it was Rocky, Bound for Glory, uh, Hal Ashby's Woody Guthrie biography, which is kind of forgotten but really good, All right. uh, with a lovely performance from uh, Keith Carradine. And uh, network all the president's men and oh uh, network all the president's men Rocky Bound for Glory and the fifth one was oh Taxi Driver right okay wow right mm. and those are radically different films styles of films styles of commentary the the you could argue and they're all deserving of the win I mean you could argue that. Uh, the embrace of Rocky might have led to more feel-good blockbuster stuff, but mm. that was already coming. Uh, the the sense of network being this weird New York studio production—it feels like an indie. It doesn't feel like—I mean, it doesn't feel like a big A-list all-star film, although that's how it was marketed. I mean, mm. that's what it is. Yeah. But it just—it feels like this alien entity in the middle of all of those because the other films are really. 
very conventional narratives. Taxi Driver is highly stylized, but it's still a story about a man who loses his mind mm. and murders people, mm. uh, thinking he's saving someone. And Rocky, underdog action, uh, underdog sports movie. Um, All the President's Men was the hot-button political thriller, which is also tremendously good filmmaking. Mm. And uh, and Bound for Glory is the, the sort of the movie that everyone thinks of as an Oscar contender. It's a prestige Dust Bowl picture. It's very good, but it checks a certain box. And you get to network and, you know, what is it? It's 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 almost... I, I, I'm going out on a limb here conceptually, but it feels now like a dystopian science fiction movie. Yeah. It just happens to be taking place in the present day. That was the thing I took away from it the last time. Absolutely. And I guess it's like the whole... Uh... Yeah, like the old Philip K. Dick thing of just like it's reality, but we change one thing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you've just all you have to do is just like relax broadcasting standards. <laughs> you relax, relax. Well, you know, like you know, like if, if, if you can create a world where um, a, a, a a television company can fund a terrorist organization to produce to give them footage, you change that one thing, and then just like let everything else just like unfold as is. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess uh, I guess that's what you. Uh, what you end up with. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, this is, you know, because there are huge, huge gaps in my, my, my film knowledge. I'm a, I'm a kind of armchair fan, but um, I'm not entirely sure of the legacy of that project. And it's interesting that I suppose with something like Altered States that what Panachowski did next was kind of in a sort of bid to have some kind of like ultimate control kind of ended up kind of just like kind of, yeah. kind of clashing and... Uh, and you know, producing, I suppose, quite a, quite a strange film as a result. And I guess maybe you know, like maybe the style of dialogue kind of appears in other places, but maybe that so uh, that kind of story, which is just this kind of this kind of essay film, is. You know, I'm not entirely sure where that reappears. Yeah, I think it became a catchphrase more than anything else because people would say, oh, it's like network, and it never was. <laughs> uh, but it was an easy way to package a radical idea mm. and and then miss the fact that network is also a comedy and it's a, it's a very precise satire to the point where, you know, it almost, it almost, it does, it stops being funny and becomes truly horrible, which is why it has its power. But you have to be able to hold all of those ideas in your head while you're watching it to really understand why it's so singular. And then people would say, oh, this is the new network. And it never, never was. It was always just, you know, I think I remember people trying to put that label on broadcast news on the James L. Brooks film, which mm. is a lovely movie, mm. but not network. I mean, in no way. I mean, it, the closest it, does, it comes to any kind of satire is just to say, you know, anchor people don't write their own copy and sometimes they're not terribly bright and just good looking. And I remember being shocked I was 21 watching this film thinking I'm not supposed to be surprised by this right like this is just the way the world works mm. yeah absolutely um, yeah that, that and I guess like and it's it's funny there is like I, I feel like this is, it's impossible to almost talk about network you can only talk about your individual experience of it because right, the world yeah. has changed so much around us uh, but um, I imagine for everyone watching it there's maybe a slightly different tipping point when suddenly you're like Oh, so you go like this is ghoulish. Yeah. Then you go, um, uh, this is hot. We get this. You like this is horrible. This is ghoulish. And then suddenly you're like, oh no, this is fast. This is funny. And there's there, there, there is 
and I guess like exactly where that point is depends exactly when in time you're kind of like you're kind of like watching it yeah. as to when it goes from being familiar to uh, um, to being kind of uh, exaggerated. I wonder if that's it too. There's the point where it becomes you stop thinking of it as vaguely familiar and you recognize something. Mm. You actually connect to it uh, in a real world way. I would have loved to see it with a, an audience in 1976 just to find out how it played. Mm. I mean, I assume there was a lot of uncomfortable laughter, but there's also real, there, there is, you can't watch that Ned Beatty speech and not think that it's uh, somehow somewhat funny. Yeah. I mean, it is wonderful, but it's, it's terrifying and, um, and, and ghoulish and funny and exploitative and, it's it's also clearly the decision of a person who has realized the only way to intimidate an insane person is to be more insane. And you can see the actor making that character's choice. Yep. Which is so fascinating in the middle of this whirlwind. Yep. The bit, I love it when he drops out of this, uh, uh, that kind of like Shakespearean performance and he just goes, am I getting through to you? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a sort of, yeah. I, yeah, I, I really love that moment. Um, it's a, uh, it, I, th- I kind of feel that like it's a shame that in, in many ways lots of these ideas n- now almost feel cliched and it's not in be- it's it's actually because we're living it so constantly yeah. that it becomes increasingly hard to get out from underneath it to be able to uh, to talk about it. Um, but um, I had an experience that um, happened to me. At uh, a, a university, where um, uh, a friend had told me that about this this group, who uh, who he had met in a late night laundrette on campus, who liked to get inside the tumble dryers and go around. So they're big industrial sized tumble dryers. You can fit a person in, and you can kind of go around inside it. And I thought, oh, I'd love to write a story about this um, for uh, you would feel like the local uh, newspaper or the college newspaper. And so I kind of went down to the laundrettes, kind of looking for any kind of people kind of doing that kind of thing. No one was around. I put up a sign in the laundrette saying, uh, are you a member of, of Wash Club? And I put like, I drew like a stick man plus tumble dryer equals question mark. And then I put my mobile number and I was like, okay, well, that's going to be. That's gonna get people. People, if you know what that means, then maybe someone will will like contact me, and then I can interview them for this this story. And immediately, people started to text that number, wanting to join the club, right, not yes. not wanting to be part of it. I mean, immediately, I was like, oh, I'm now the ringleader of the thing I was meant to be investigating. Yes. And like that, we immediately like crossing the floor of realizing that like in simply trying to to document something and and, and write it. Um, I've, 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 I've inadvertently created it. So did you, in the end? I have to know where this goes. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I did. <laughs> so what I did is, I, 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 to begin with, I maintained the deception and I sent people a message saying, we're meeting next Monday. Come down. Because right. I thought, oh, well, I can go along pretending I'm a new recruit as oh, well. Oh, nice. And then I can kind of talk to people at the end while I'm kind of down there. And, you know, and I can kind of, I can get firsthand their appearance. Now I'm kind of like undercover at this thing that I've utterly manufactured. Right. Um, 
Um, and um, and so we could have set it up. Um, but I did a little bit more research uh, before heading down there about it. And basically, there was like news stories of like kids who'd got inside tumble dryers years ago in like Wales. And there was like a story about kids that had got inside tumble dryers. And... Um, because the tumble dryer was like gas operated, they would they would asphyxiate by it. They didn't yeah. die, but like they were like really really ill because they got inside kind of tumble dryer. And then I was like, oh well, my mate told me that there was a that this happened on site, so I know that the ones on site are safe. I know that the ones on site are, are electric. Right. And then I just started to question whether the whole story was true in the first place. Yeah. I was like, he did also tell me that. Um, he insisted he went in and had his own go and insisted on being tumbled at the same temperature that he does his clothes <laughs> that is clearly not true <laughs> so now I'm, I'm, I'm like okay the guy's story was maybe like completely fabricated <laughs> oh, so I went down there anyway and only two people turned up and I basically told them that like it could be really dangerous and that I'd, and I'd researched it I didn't reveal that I was the guy who right. set it all up in the first place you were the sceptic I was a skeptic and uh, that was the end of that. It did still end up, somebody, another journalist wrote it up and put like a local a story in the, the local newspaper uh, about it. So it still kind of like had this weird kind of, um, this weird legacy uh, on site, despite the fact that, um, yeah, I actually think there was no original right, you, thing you, whatsoever. You inadvertently, you didn't create an urban legend, you simply legitimized it. I legitimized it. Yeah. yeah, and uh, everybody knows, of course, the first rule of Wash Club is that you don't talk about this. <laughs> Are you surprised to learn this is like, you know, like maybe two months after Fight Club yeah. came out at the, uh, you know, like in the, in the, in the cinema? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think it was just, you know, like, it was people, I think people were up for it. And the same reason why I was up for it was because for a little moment, you got to feel like you're in a film. And you got to relax the laws of reality, sure. and you got to kind of like indulge in this kind of like fictionalized version of yourself, and that's, you know, that's weirdly uh, cathartic. Oh, it's incredibly appealing. Yeah, yeah. Just the chance to be not you for a bit. Yeah. Or a better version, more interesting version. Yeah. Looks and, good down the road. And this is why you know I guess you know, to, to today you know like why um, reality TV is seductive for people. It feels like this in you're handing over this incredible trust, but, you know, like, you get to be kind of, like, flattened out into this, you know, it's this, you know, could even be, like, this weird form of therapy. You're like, I want to look, I want to see what other people see on the other side of the screen. I want to have this kind of reconstituted version of myself, you know, like, and, and, you know, like, and, uh, and, you know, so you can, like, hand over, you you know, your life story to somebody else to do that. I'm uncertain. Like, that implies so much more self-knowledge than the people on reality television seem to have, um, especially in the states where it is just seen as uh, the ultimate goal of people who don't have anything else. Right? Like to be famous is the the solution to whatever problem you think you have, and it never is. Um, I mean, maybe it is for uh, the Kardashians yeah. because they don't seem to really have problems in the first place, but the 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 ordinary people who become reality stars they're destroyed yeah. every single one of them like there's never the the thing about trump on the apprentice uh was that he became 
a version of himself that was palatable to people when you know, like now we're seeing him unmediated and he's clearly just uh, a morbidly obese, demented old man who who is filled with hate and, and nothing more and, mm-hmm. and, and empty sorrow. Uh, John Oliver had this great bit where um, he says if you watch him, every time something happens, you can see a moment of brief curiosity of like, oh, maybe this will be the thing that makes me happy. Nope, that wasn't it. <laughs> over and over again. He's, uh, I love watching back uh, Trump's, uh, you know, his his time um, appearing in a WWE. Oh, yeah. Uh, just, and just how, you know, like, he's very, very good at that, all the wrestler shtick. He's mm-hmm. very good at, like, testing sentences and working out what audiences respond to and then keep saying those sentences again and again. And even the way he kind of, like, walks back and forth is, you know, like, is, like, just always reminds me now of just, like, his kind of, like, weird appearances in, in, in the ring. Uh, yeah. yeah. What? A, I mean, this is it, isn't it? It's it, it's it's everywhere. I mean, that reminds me of there's that great bit. It's in one of uh, uh, Peter Finch's like final monologues where he's just like, "You maniacs! You know, like we are the illusion. <laughs> You're the real people. Like that that idea of just like this complete inversion. I don't know which philosopher it was. There was a guy recently who reversed the uh, the Andy Warhol quote. So it was like, you know, in our lives, you know, we'll have yeah. 15 minutes of privacy. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's it. That's, that, that's kind of like, that's what you'll get. So, you know, look forward to it when it comes for, the, for your one brief moment of unmediated uh, existence. Yeah. Oh, we won't appreciate it till it's over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. No, it'll happen. And then like, you know, like you'll, you're like, you'll have, you're gonna drop your phone in a lake, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you'll you'll kind of wander around the forest for a couple of days, and yeah. then come out, and you'll be like, "Oh, that was that was beautiful." Yeah, this is a monologue in someone else's play. <laughs> you know that time that was the best time of my life Ooh. before the witch got me. <laughs> but we are in this we are in this world that network not only predicted networks saw it coming, laid it out, and no one paid attention. Like that's the the. The best thing you can say about a truly successful satire is that if you wait long enough, it stops being funny. Yeah. And now it just seems like a blueprint. Um, it's it's one of those films that you you can only watch in the context of yeah, well, right, sure, of course, this is why wouldn't you make this movie? Uh, why aren't there more movies about this? And the answer is because nobody was was willing to take the dare, the conceptual dare yeah. that Chayefsky did, and talk Warner into doing or MGM into doing it. And uh, and yeah, now we're just we're we're in the wasteland that I predicted, and it's it's so depressing. It really is. I mean, I, this is what I mean when I say I would have loved to see a screening of it in '76, and and wonder how people left the theater. You know, were they elated? Were they depressed? Were they shocked? What was the prevailing sentiment then? Yeah. Or were they just gone, Yeah. Bit on the nose, yeah. bit over the top, right? It's just like, you know, like way too, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I'm too smart for that. Yeah. I'll come on. Fall for this. You know, like, yeah. Uh, um, absolutely. It's, it's kind of always a, a kind of, pro- yeah, this is like a, it, it, it's, it's definitely like a condition of, of satire in general, isn't it? That, that actually, I don't know. Like I, uh, I tried to write uh, years ago, 
no, two years ago now, three years ago, mm. I wrote like a play that was uh, palindromic. So the first line of dialogue was the same as the last, and then second line was the same as the thing. It was just an absolute nightmare to yeah. write. Can you tell originally that like it was an idea where it was like I had lots of fun pitching it, and then a nightmare time I actually can, kind of like yeah. producing it. But I read, but like uh, as the conditions of this story kind of like unfolded, the the, the story started to kind of reveal itself to me, um, and uh, and it I it, it did become a kind of satire about media. It was about like a guy who was the uh, uh, a, a kind of uh, a a guy who had, had a sort of political um, uh, um, talk show and enjoyed like. Um, Kind of crucifying politicians on air, and they enjoyed the kind of the, the circus elements of kind of bringing people on, and then just like annihilating them, uh, but kind of more for ratings and for anything else. And then at the halfway point in the story, um, they uh, um, they get arrested, and then lots of the stuff that's all be that he said in the first half all gets kind of used against him in uh, the, yeah. in the second half. But the, uh, like because I had to set it in. To make the palindrome work, I set it in the near future, and I kind of added in lots of kind of uh, media elements about about how oh well, Kate speech is going to kind of grow as a concept. You're not going to be able to put it back in its box until you know, like any kind of any language which is kind of directed negatively at someone else will kind of count, you know, within kind of hate speech. So all, all kind of criticism is kind of like removed, and. When the play was kind of finished and we kind of put it on, we, what we thought would be amusing, hilarious, kind of like farcical, oh, look at the future. We're still already like kind of too close to the news yeah. to be able to, to, for people to be able to kind of enjoy it and kind of laugh at it. It even made people sad or, <laughs> or, or just felt obvious. <laughs> and, you know, like, and we were like, okay, yeah, we, it's, it's kind of, that's a kind of problem with, with kind of trying to write, uh, Satire, definitely trying to write satire whilst also writing a palindrome. I would not recommend yeah. that. God, no. But I think we are at a, at a place where reality has outpaced satirical um, viability because I, was it yesterday, the day before, that Nigel Farage was on a trawler throwing fish into the Thames and yeah. some sort of protest about fish, but it, I, I thought it was some kind of a hoax because yeah. it made no sense at all. And... I'm sure it will be a, a, a sketch on somebody's um, comedy show by the weekend, but it's the, the 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 level of performance in politics now. I think is is has transcended satire because the the conservative movement is now simply anger and mm. and and uh, a sort of a stubborn refusal to acknowledge that we're in the 21st century and the world is different and smaller and bigger at the same time and just I want it to be. Like this imaginary version. Well, the thing that the Republicans always sell, this imaginary version of the 1950s that never really existed, but women were quiet and you didn't see a lot of dark people and, and it was just, you know, it was like Mad Men, only less ironic. Yeah. And you can't satirize that mindset because it's, there's just no point. No. Yeah. So yeah, we've got this kind of weaponized nostalgia. Mm. And uh, yeah, combined with these, um, these aggressive acts which are intentionally disruptive they are just like 
we're refusing to play the game. And 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 so like it can feel just like bizarro performance art of watching yeah. like the 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 ex leader of UKIP throwing dead fish in the Thames, and that's me- you know like and but I guess the thing about like just like weird abstract like disruptive stuff which is almost kind of like at its heart like meaningless is that like both sides can code it right yeah. so 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 you know like. You, if if you are just like refusing to actually explain what you mean, if you just want to keep saying Brexit means Brexit, yeah. uh, and then you can leave other people to code that, you know, like you basically you leave this kind of vacuum at the center, uh, and uh, yeah, and then both sides can both do it, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. Oh no, <laughs> this this is it. Yeah, I have like two coffees, and then and then it's a. Uh, uh, and then I'm going to start to go down a kind of political rabbit hole. You've hit the conceptual wall. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, but, um, well, I mean, that is pretty much how this works. You just, you, to look into network is to end up realizing just how much network is around you and, and how much it's around us and how it's, I don't think it shaped the world we live in, but it influences our thinking about it. That's probably the best thing a satire can do is that it lets you give, it, it grants you that perspective that maybe you didn't have before. Absolutely, yeah. And now that like we are part of the network, and that we, uh, that when we some see something that feels authentic, that we like, that we agree with, we rebroadcast it. Yeah. You know, like and that, and we, we, and, and so we are also, you know, in our own little way, these weird little mini kind of micro notes, right? Yeah, amplifiers, signal boosters, all of that. Yeah, and so therefore, of course, like. The content is lost. The message is not listened to. It's not contemplated. It's immediately reflected back out again, right? Yeah. You know, like now without our little emblem next to it, instead. God help us. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there anything from the film that you've? This is the the final question of the podcast, um, and I, I have to actually point out, you are the first person who has had a film discussed on the podcast to do the podcast yourself oh yeah so, no I was so pleased I was so, so lovely to, uh, to to hear that I was I was overjoyed yeah oh, I'm, I'm really really nice I'm so glad this worked out too uh, is there anything from network that you have you know used borrowed referenced stolen or otherwise incorporated into your creative DNA it's difficult I think in some ways like thematically um, it's so similar to the stuff that I'm interested in uh, my film um, Stand By For Take Back Up in part was all about taking um, mass-consumed media and trying to um, reinterpret it in a way that I found very personal autobiographical messages inside it. And I think, but yeah, partly for me that was a question of, you know, like in a world where um, w- we feel sometimes sort of stripped or as if we're being like force fed mm-hmm. a kind of like a like it, like information how we can kind of use interpretive power to kind of unravel that and to kind of like hide our own stories inside it and I think that's that is kind of in a way sort of connected to um, that in many ways is, is, is me trying to find a um, a response to to network in a way where um you feel that any articulation of the self 
has actually been fed to you from somewhere else. Right, right, right. Um, you know, like in this idea, I think in this idea that yes, as we said earlier, like from the top on down, you know, like the teleprompter is being passed from like division to division until it ends up coming out of uh, your mouth. I guess it's the idea of like trying to find a way of forcing something back up the pipe. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and trying to sort of uh, uh, um, reclaim control of uh, uh, something which like, like on the surface might seem um, as if it's kind of, kind of uh, sanitized and, yeah. uh, and, and kind of comes with a, uh, with a controlled message. Um, but uh, no, it's just, a, but it is a story that I think about like all the time and whenever I'm trying to write a kind of a dramatic script, uh, like I, th- I think about, I think about the way that network builds and about the way that it kind of like pushes against um, the idea of an arc and, and, and instead just like hammers down on the, on the same point again and again and again uh, and, I, and so like I think that's something that I, I it's always in the back of my head when trying to write something new a better bludgeon yeah absolutely get a bigger hammer my thanks to Ross Sutherland whose podcast Imaginary Advice can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts probably the same place you listen to this one if you're in Chicago you can catch a live taping of an episode this Monday October 1st at Lynx Hall ticket information is available at imaginaryadvice.com If you click on the Films tab, you'll find Ross's standby for tape backup in its entirety. And if you're in Raleigh, North Carolina, Ross will be performing that live at the VHS-Tival at the Alamo Drafthouse Raleigh on Saturday, October 20th. That will definitely be worth checking out. You can find Ross on Twitter at Ross G. Sutherland, all one word, and you can find Network on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. There's also a very good UK special edition from Arrow Academy. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Just too darn loud.